Welcome, friends and enemies, fans, stands, and simps. Welcome to Gil's Oddcast. I'm Gillian, pagan, pan, poly, vegan, kink-friendly, sex-positive, true-crime-obsessed, PCOS, ADHD, mom of 15 fur kids, and four human spawn, Twitch streamer, artist, and goth kitten with depression and anxiety. This podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. The content within this podcast contains themes that some individuals may consider triggering, offensive, or disturbing. The intent is not to disrespect listeners or any individuals spoken about herein. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, today is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Happy New Year, y'all. I'm sorry about the long hiatus, but I had a lot of health stuff going on. We had a plague for almost a whole month, and I've had other things going on health-wise. Had to have a biopsy and some scans and stuff. We're not done with that yet. I will keep you guys up to date with what's going on if there's anything up. Today is International Ear Care Day. International Irish Whiskey Day, Global Day of Unplugging, and World Wildlife Day. So, remember not to shove those Q-tips in your ears. They're only for the outside, guys. Grab a nice little glass of Jameson. I think that's Irish, isn't it? Listen to this podcast and then go spend the rest of the day unplugged outside. Have fun. I say even though I'll probably be playing video games today. And appreciate the wildlife that's out there. When it comes to wildlife right now, my two favorite animals are quokkas and capybaras because they seem like the two happiest animals in the world. They're so adorable. Quokkas always look like they're smiling or posing or whatever and they have the little pouch for their babies. It's so cute. Seriously, look them up guys. They are like the happiest looking creatures I've ever seen other than capybaras because capybaras look quite happy too all the time. They are the ones that look like big guinea pigs. So yeah, those are my two favorite wildlife animals because they just seem so chill and so happy. I want to embody that energy. (laughs) Today's episode is going to be about the odd origins of things. And you may or may not know the first one. We're going to be discussing Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Now, the beginning of that might be something you know from it floating around online, but I go into quite a bit of detail about Mr. Kellogg and everything about his beliefs and why that brought him to inventing Corn Flakes. Our first trip back in time for our weird origins of inventions is Corn Flakes. Cornflakes may have been invented to discourage masturbation. John Harvey Kellogg was born on February 26, 1852. He was his father's 10th child and his mother's 5th child. The couple had a total of 16 children combined. His father had 5 with his first wife and 11 with his second. The Kelloggs were early supporters of the Seventh-day Adventists' religion. This is a religion that is pro-vegetarian, pro-natural living. They do not like traditional medicine and drugs, at least back then especially. I know when we first went vegetarian, they were one of the places where we were recommended to look into for shopping for vegetarian foods if you didn't have a good health food store nearby. This was a billion years ago. But yeah, they really are about natural living. As a child, John Harvey Kellogg was very sickly. 
He had repeated bouts of tuberculosis when he was very young, and it rendered his left lung useless. So he spent a lot of time alone and isolated and ill. His parents homeschooled them because being deeply religious, they believed that the world was going to end before he had a chance to be an adult and like use his education. So they homeschooled him. He wasn't taught as well as he should have been. Eventually, they did let him go to school, and he caught up very quickly. He was a very smart child and ended up attending college. He started out at medical school. He quit for a while, and the Whites, which are the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they actually funded for him to go to a Seventh-day Adventist medical school, which was a 20-week course, and it was all about using air and water and natural foods to heal yourself versus medical school was teaching to use interventions and drugs to heal. But when he did finish and get his certificate from the Seventh-day Adventist program, the Whites did encourage him to go back to medical school because it was becoming more unacceptable to not have a true medical degree from an accredited university. So at 24, after he went through college and got his degree and he had the certificate for the Seventh-day Adventist more natural course, he was tasked by the Whites to take over as medical director at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which wasn't just a sanitarium. It was also the Western Health Reform Institute as well and it had been serving patients since 1866. So it had been in business first 10 years at this point. They had 20 rooms and only eight paying patients. Kellogg advocated to both make a posher section so that they could get people to come that had money, as well as a charity section so that they could serve people that didn't have money. So he was worried about the well-being of everyone. He was not a bad man. He was altruistic and he was doing what he thought was the best as far as everyone went. So once he was at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, he decided to work on patients and trying to find the ultimate course of healing and healthiness and making everybody very healthy. He experimented with the therapeutic effects of a lot of things. He encouraged chewing. He advised people to chew each bite of food at least 40 times before swallowing. He would sing a chewing song for his patients at the sanitarium. He introduced electric light baths and sinusoidal current, which is electricity. It would be mild doses of electrical current directly to your skin. So he said they were painless and he thought it would be good for therapeutic effects. He also believed in the continuous tub bath, much like a regular tub bath, but it could last for many hours, days, weeks, or months as the case may be required. Apparently the patient was allowed to get out occasionally to use the toilet though, so don't worry about that. He advocated continuous baths as a treatment for skin disease, chronic diarrhea, and a host of mental maladies, including delirium, hysteria, and mania. He advocated a 15-quart enema and a vibrating chair. And then he had a bunch of masturbation cures. He was a zealous, lifelong foe of what he called the solitary vice and the vile practice. Kellogg believed that masturbation led to poor digestion, memory loss, impaired vision, heart disease, epilepsy, and insanity, to name just a few insidious side effects. To break young boys of the habit, he suggested procedures that ranged from ridiculous to barbaric, including tying their hands, bandaging the offending organ, or putting a cage over it. If that didn't work, he would recommend circumcision without anesthetic, as the brief pain attending the operation will have a salutary effect upon the mind. He wrote that in his book, Plain Facts for Old and Young. Kellogg had an even more gruesome set of treatments for girls, including the application of pure cabalic acid to the clitoris, 
or in more extreme cases, surgical removal. My God, few of these treatments are practiced today, thankfully. So the anti-masturbation stuff came from being a Seventh-day Adventist. His treatments remain largely grounded in the religion's tenets of dietary and sexual abstinence, much of which had come to the founder in visions and prophecies. And don't think that he was just talking about this and not practicing it. He did practice what he preached. He was an avid vegetarian and reportedly celibate in his own four-decade marriage. The man was celibate in his marriage. He seemed willing to try anything to cure his patient's ills. So what it comes down to is because of his religion, he advocated for clean living and practical sexual abstinence, as well as recommending a bland diet as one of several methods to discourage masturbation. He never specifically referred to cornflakes when talking about this, but they certainly fit the bland profile. So it was a mass-produced cereal that was made with the idea that it would discourage masturbation. I'll be back after a little break with our next odd origin. Now that we finished talking about Kellogg and his anti-masturbation pathway in life, let's move on to something kind of the opposite. We're going to talk about vibrators. Now, when you think of vibrators now, you think of it as a sex toy that helps bring pleasure to millions of women and men around the world. But vibrators had a long history as medical quackery. The first electromechanical vibrator was a device called a percuture, invented by a British physician named Joseph Mortimer Granville. In the late 1870s or early 1880s, Granville thought that vibration powered the human nervous system, and he developed the percuture as a medical device for stimulating ailing nerves. Current medical opinion held that hysteria was a nervous disease. Yet, Granville refused to treat female patients, quote, simply because I do not want to be hoodwinked by vagaries of the hysterical state, end of quote. The vibrator began as a therapy for men only. It then quickly left the sphere of mainstream medical practice. By the early 20th century, manufacturers were selling vibrators as ordinary electric household appliances. The merits of electricity in the home were not as obvious then as they are today. Electricity was dangerous and expensive, but it promised excitement and modernity. Electric commodities like sewing and washing machines became the hallmarks of the rising middle class. Vibrators were another shiny new technology used to sell consumers on the prospect of modern electric living. Just as banks handed out free toasters for opening checking accounts in the 1960s, in the 1940s, the Rural Electrification Administration distributed free vibrators to encourage farmers to electrify their homes. These modern electric devices were not thought of as sex toys. These appliances promised relief of a non-sexual variety. Users of all ages vibrated just about every body part without sexual intent. Vibrators made housework easier by soothing the pains of tired housewives, calming the cries of sick children, and invigorating the bodies of modern working men. They applied to tired backs and sore feet, but also the throat to cure laryngitis, the nose to relieve sinus pressure, and everything in between. Vibration promised to calm the stomachs of colicky babies and to stimulate hair growth in balding men. It even was thought to help 
help heal broken bones. In 1910, advertisement in the New York Tribune declared that vibration banishes disease as the sun banishes mist. In 1912, the Hamilton Beach New Life Vibrator came with a 300-page instructional guide titled Health and How to Get It, offering a cure for everything from obesity to appendicitis to tuberculosis and vertigo. As some advertisements suggested, vibrators were not standard medical treatments, but medical quackery, alternative medicine that didn't deliver on their promises. Yet, the electric cure-alls sold by the millions. Now, at the beginning, sex toy scholar Haley Lieberman points out that nearly every vibrator company in the early 20th century offered phallic attachments that would have been considered obscene if sold as dildos. Presented instead as rectal or vaginal dilators, these devices were supposed to cure hemorrhoids, constipation, vaginitis, cervicitis, and other illnesses localized to the genitals and the anus. Hamilton Beach, for example, offered a special rectal applicator for an additional cost of $1.50 and recommended its use in the treatment of impotence, piles, which are hemorrhoids, and rectal diseases. The two most prominent scholars of vibrator history, Rachel Maines and Haley Lieberman, argue that vibrators were always secretly sexual, but people disagree with it. They were popular medical devices. One of the many medical uses was to cure diseases of sexual dysfunction. As I was saying before, it was argued specifically that vibrators shouldn't be used on hysterical women, which is funny because originally that's what I heard it was used for. It was a medical device for men to be used on a variety of body parts, mainly to treat pain, spinal disease, and deafness. The only sexual uses that the original inventor suggested were vibrating men's perineums to treat impotence. Illustrations in Dr. Granville's book on the invention of the electric vibrator show him using it only on men. So it was originally invented for men for other ailments, not anything to do with sex. And then it became a common appliance in the household. So there's two trains of thought on this. There are people that still say that it was meant to treat hysteria and those who say that it wasn't because back in the day, if a female had hysteria, they would treat it with pelvic massage, which Victorian era women who experienced everything from loss of sexual appetite to neurasthenia, which fatigue, anxiety, mild depression were diagnosed with female hysteria and often prescribed a manual pelvic massage meant to cause hysterical paroxysm in the patient, which is an orgasm, to cure said maladies. So the one school of thought is that he actually invented it to relieve physicians because he developed carpal tunnel from the manual labor of doing pelvic massage techniques on women. The usage of pelvic massage to combat female hysteria, a diagnosis largely debunked in the early 20th century and no longer recognized today, dates all the way back to Hippocrates in 450 BCE, according to Dr. Rachel Maines, a famed sex historian and author of the book The Technology of Orgasm. It persisted through the Middle Ages, but really seemed to explode during the last quarter of the 19th century when doctors believed there was an epidemic of hysteria. There was a doctor back then, a hydrotherapist in the U.S., who believed that up to 75% of women suffered from female hysteria hysteria, despite having no way of measuring the statistic. While hydriatic massage achieving paroxysm through spraying water was used as early as the mid-1700s in the U.S. and U.K. bathhouses, manual pelvic massage became an enormously popular medical procedure to combat female hysteria during the Victorian age. There was no recognition, except for two physicians, that there was anything sexual about this paroxysm at all. You're producing a crisis of the disease, just like the breaking of a fever, and it was simply your duty as a doctor. 
and achieving hysterical paroxysm in female patients was a very time-consuming task. <laughs> and doctors the era claiming it was incredibly difficult to learn and would take up to an hour manually. While the electromechanical vibrator was invented by Dr. Joseph Mortimer Granville in some time in the late 1800s, a steam-powered vibrator called the Manipulator was invented in 1869 by American physician George Taylor. According to Dr. Maines, the patient interface component was about the size of a dining room table. It had a cut-out area for a vibrating sphere. The steam engine that powered the reciprocating motion of the sphere was located in a separate room from the patient. Doctors didn't like it because you couldn't move it and take it with you on house call. And you had to shovel coal into it. Dr. Granville's electromechanical vibrator was portable but had a wet cell battery that weighed about 40 pounds in addition to the vibrator itself and the vibratodes. Still, the early vibrators reduced the time it took to achieve paroxysm in female patients from an hour to around five minutes. Gee, imagine that. Battery-powered vibrators were introduced as a household appliance as early as 1899, according to Dr. Maines, but doctors were still trying to convince patients it was worth 2 to $3 a visit to be treated with gigantic pelvic massage machines. After a while, patients realized if they could order one from Sears for $5, why should they go to the doctor for 2 to 3 dollars a visit she says the vibrator was enormously popular and became the fifth electrical appliance to be introduced into the home alongside the tea kettle sewing machine fan and toaster and ads for the device ran in everything from needlecraft to sears robot and company to women's home companion one 1910 vibrator ad titled vibration is life reads the secret of the ages has been discovered in vibration great scientists tell us that we owe not only our health but even our life strength to this wonderful force vibration promotes life and vigor strength and beauty vibrate your body and make it well you have no right to be sick by the end of the 20s though vibrators began to appear in pornographic films which made it difficult for women to maintain they were merely buying these devices to massage their scalp or the back of their necks the doctors dropped them because of their perceived sexual connotation so we see during the great depression the sales of all electrical appliances dropping and that included the vibrator because the metal used for electrical appliances was diverted into the war effort once we hit world war ii then in the 50s vibrators came back they were marketed to women with a great deal of social camouflage dubbed spot reducers they were allegedly used to help women lose weight thanks to the 1953 kinsey reports though the sex therapy profession gained steam in the late 50s and according to dr Maines, a sex therapist devised a new way to gain results in his inorgastic patients he discovered his patients were getting great results with vibrating electric toothbrushes and published those results says Dr. Maines. Of course, sales of electric toothbrushes seem to have increased. During the 60s and 70s, the vibrator resurfaced thanks to feminists like Betty Dodson, who made it a female, it made it a symbol of female sexuality as well as the publication of the best-selling book, The Joy of Sex, in 1972. So it started out as a medical device. Regardless of which story you believe, it was either for men to relieve all kinds of ailments non-sexual ailments or it was used for female hysteria now it depends on who you read on which reason for the device but that is how it came to be and that is an odd origin it's you know it wasn't used it was either used the way they are used now but only under medical supervision for specific issues women had or it was used nothing at all like we use it now for men to relieve other issues but yeah so that is our second item and it's odd origin next up we have the chainsaw 
<laughs> Our last in-depth look at an odd invention is chainsaws. When you think of chainsaws, you probably think of either scary monster men chasing screaming women with one or that one neighbor who gets up at 7 a.m. on the weekend to use his loudest tools. But nothing can be more removed from the origins of the modern chainsaw. It was originally a surgical implement, and not for what you might imagine, amputations or the like. No, invented in 1780 by two Scottish doctors, John Aitken and James Jeffrey, the chainsaw was used for a procedure called symphysiotomy, which is a widening of the birth canal to allow for vaginal birth when natural delivery wasn't an option. During the procedure, the pubic symphysis, which is a joint above the vulva and connected with cartilage and reinforced with ligaments and tendons, is severed to widen the pelvis to make birth more successful. Yep, you heard me right. The chainsaw was invented for childbirth. This procedure was originally quite brutal, performed using a knife, making it extremely painful and messy, and it took a while to do because your doctor would have to sit there sawing through all of that stuff with a little knife. The original chainsaw was the size of a knife, but it looked very similar to the newer ones, like our modern chainsaw. It had the chain with the little nubs all the way around it, but it was hand cranked, because you do remember this was in 1780. So it made the procedure quicker, less messy, and less painful because it was quicker. Though the chainsaw was a success over the traditional knife, it was tricky and dangerous to use. So not all doctors could do it. It also had a forever lasting effect on the mothers due to cutting the pelvis. The use was shifted towards amputations in the mid-19th century, and the bone saw replaced it as a better medical option overall, eventually. As chainsaws fell out of fashion medically, a gentleman named Samuel J. Beans realized using them to take down trees, cutting firewood and hedges was very effective, and he went ahead and filed a patent. So that's how the chainsaw became a tool that we equate it as. From birth to lumberjacks. I'm going to be back with a quick rundown of three other inventions that had really odd origins. Hey y'all, I'm back. And the first item we're going to talk about is Kleenex. In World War I, a new threat came to battlefields. Poisonous gas. Soldiers experienced temporary blindness, difficulty breathing, hideous burns, and vomiting when exposed to this new danger. Governments rushed to find a solution even though it caused a very small percentage of war deaths. The psychological effect on the soldiers was tremendous. So around the same time, the Kimberly Clark Company, a paper manufacturer, was looking to diversify its products and be began developing a new kind of sanitary napkin. The new product called Cellu Cotton had a crepe-like texture that was absorbent and disposable. Later, cellu cotton was used as a gas mask filter to prevent soldiers from getting sick from poisonous gas exposure. And they worked. Once the war ended, however, the manufacturer was virtually left with mountains of cellu cotton. So, in 1923, the company made the tissue softer and thinner to remarket them as makeup wipes for women. But a few years into the rebranding, it became clear that consumers had a different use for the wipes. There were a lot more people that used it as a disposable handkerchief, historian Thomas Heinrich said. 
The company's head researcher, who was sick with hay fever, also began using Kleenex as a disposable wipe, which inspired the idea for the first ever pull-out Kleenex box. Within six months, the company rebranded again and became known as the ubiquitous brand for disposable tissue wipes, Kleenex. And then as we move on, the next item is Pepto-Bismol. Looking to cure a form of cholera that caused severe diarrhea, vomiting, and sometimes death, a doctor concocted the original formula of Pepto-Bismol, which he called Mixture Cholera Infantum. It proved effective against those symptoms, though researchers would later learn that cholera was caused by a bacterial infection and treatable with antibiotics. The well-known pink color was added to entice younger patients to take the medicine. In 1919, unable to produce enough supply for the demand, the inventor brought this formula to Norwich Pharmacal Company in New York who sold it through their medical catalog for doctors. And that's how the lovely pink stuff became used in households for belly issues. Because when they realized that color was from bacterial infection, they realized that the pink stuff was treating the symptoms so it could be used for those symptoms in other ways, in other times. So if you overeat, you can use Pepto-Bismol for your stomach feeling ill or having some kind of other symptoms like vomiting or diarrhea and that kind of stuff. Then the last thing we're going to cover is Listerine. Now Listerine was invented in 1878 by chemist Joseph Lawrence. It was originally meant to be a surgical antiseptic, but it was sold for a variety of purposes because pharmacist Jordan Wheat Lambert, who licensed it in 1881, saw the sales potential of promoting it for other uses. In 1895, Listerine was sold to dentists for oral care, but before it was also used as a non-effective treatment for gonorrhea and a floor cleaner. In 1914, it became the first prescription mouthwash to sell over-the-counter in the U.S. Lambert marketed it as the only cure for bad breath or halitosis, a condition made up by his company from the Latin halitus, which means breath, and osis, which gave it a medical-sounding name. So this gentleman was a master marketer because he made up a condition to make people paranoid about their bad breath. But there you go. That was how Listerine started and where it ended up. Hey y'all, I hope you enjoyed today's educational Freaky Friday edition of Odd Origins of Everyday Items. I just want to apologize for how long I've been gone. As I said, there were health issues and illnesses, and it's just been a rough beginning of the year, but I hope everyone else is having a really good new year so far. I mean, we're in March. Holy crap. It's gone by so quickly already. But I will be back on Monday with Murder Mystery Monday. I'm thinking about covering the world's youngest serial killers for this Monday's Monday Murder Mystery episode. You guys take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and have a great day. Enjoy your weekend, and I'll see you next week. Bye!